0: In the ever-deepening and awakening of the Dhamma in our hearts, there are resources that we have, practices that are so deeply strengthening and transforming that we often forget about them. Sometimes they're so basic. And tonight I'd like to speak about the power of patience. This is something that doesn't get a lot of airtime And Dhamma scenes. Um, And so I wanted to bring it to our attention this evening. At the beginning of my practice, I became really interested in learning about the Paramis. Many of you know about them already, what they are. They're the forces of strength within our own hearts that lead us to the end and the very liberating release of uh, greed, hatred, and delusion in our hearts. Patience is one of them. They also include generosity, loving kindness, equanimity, wisdom, truthfulness, resolve, energy. These are a few of them. The Buddha said that patience is the supreme virtue of all of these virtuous qualities, So for this reason, it's good to bring it forth, to give it the nourishment that it needs. Just to mention it sometimes helps us to awaken it in our own hearts. It can play a very spontaneous, active part of our practice in retreat here and in daily life. I notice that in myself, it gives this gentle, persevering energy Uh, that sustains itself so that I can keep going on the path when times are hard in practice or in daily life. It helps me remember to stay open to the ever-changing present moment when I tend to close down because it's difficult or when I tend to strike out because I don't like what's happening or when I tend to want something else to happen and all that's in my mind is wanting, wanting something more pleasant. It also helps me to maintain a quiet inner faith so that I can keep going in the direction of my highest potential and um, just keep plugging along. That gentleness and clarity of purpose that it gives us to face the inner and outer obstacles of our practice of our daily life. It seems like, you know, maybe it's so small, but it's actually a huge thing. It's actually so much more strong and helpful than we could ever think it'd be sometimes. For a number of people in our Western culture, patience is regarded as a weakness. It's like, you know, just be patient and let people step on you, that kind of thing. But actually, it's known as a real strength in, um, in Asian countries, in the East. It's respected and highly regarded. This is something I found that His Holiness the Dalai Lama said long ago. So I copied it down about patience. When it is said that one should be patient and withstand trouble, that doesn't mean that one should be defeated, or overcome the very purpose of engaging in the practice of patience is to become stronger in mind in heart and also it helps you remain calm in that atmosphere of calm you can earn wisdom if you lose patience if your mind flounders by emotions then you've lost the power to see clearly but if you're patient from a basis of altruism then you don't have to lose strength of mind. You can even increase your strength. So one of our teachers, our elder teacher, Sayadaw Upandita from Burma, is well known for a teacher who encourages continuity of mindfulness. Not this, um, he's also known for his kind of energy and strength in the practice. But to me, it's more like that strength of continuity, not so much the strength of pushing forward and leaning into the future. Whenever he sensed that there was some way that we were pushing, or in particular that I was pushing, wanting something other to happen than what actually is happening, he would be so perceptive. Sometimes his um, intuitiveness was hard to believe. Sometimes he would even seem like he was psychic that he could tell what was happening with my practice or others more than they would know themselves. So there was one time when I came into uh, his room and I was going to give my report of what was happening. And he chanted right away in Pali, the chant about patience. He said, Kanti Paramam Tapo Titika Patience is the highest virtue. It was translated for me after he chanted that. And I knew that he could tell when I was walking in that I was kind of leaning ahead of myself. It looked like I was slow, but I was a little bit tilted forward and my head was thinking about going home. I hadn't said it yet, but I was really frustrated and I wanted to go home. And before I could say that, he said those words, patience is the highest virtue. The path to freedom is paved with patience. So not too long ago, maybe a couple of years now, I did my own personal retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts, uh, connected to the Insight Meditation Society. And I recognized there were not-so-subtle and very subtle moments of impatience, of wanting to have things different than they were, of wanting my my practice to kind of show results, um, the, the results of a calm mind and some more clarity, faster than it was happening. And of course, we live in this culture of instant gratification where we expect things to happen so fast. You know, like, we're here for a day or two and we think where is you know that calm should be here that clarity should be here already but what happens is these expectations that it should be different or we should be better than we are are always lurking around kind of in under the radar undetectable a lot and it's helpful to take a look at what our attitudes are as we're doing our practice oftentimes we'll find that one attitude, the attitude of impatience, kind of driving us in our practice unknowingly. When I saw this in myself during that time I noticed that what was behind that was this striving, this uh, act of like wanting to be a good yogi, wanting to do everything right, wanting to do all those sittings and walkings that I used to do in other retreats. And with my age, you know, now I'm receiving Medicare, so you know how old I am. <laughs> and I can't do it that way anymore. Not I'm not saying that all of you young ones are exempt, but I just can't strive the way that I used to, which never got me so so many, to so many good places anyway. And I have to watch my balance a lot more than I did before. So I needed to really settle back and look at what was going on within me. You know, that kind of pushing in a habitual way that I do anyway um, at home and all the places that I try to do more than I think I can. When I was at the forest refuge, I heard Seda Upandita's voice again. In Burmese, he was saying this, uh, or in Pali, that ancient language, he was saying that this patience is the highest virtue. I would hear that, kind of that Burmese tone and that that sweet tone that he has, he can have a lot of times. He's not always as fierce as we make them out to be sometimes. And it was helpful to remind myself that the actual maturing of wisdom takes time. It's not, it's, it doesn't happen in a rush. It doesn't happen with striving. The seeds of wisdom bear the fruit of liberation in their own timing. And it's not anything we can make happen sooner than it needs to. So there was nothing to do at that time but to put forth that balanced effort, the balance that I knew I needed to have at that time, and surrender to the un, to the natural process that was going to happen, whatever was going to happen. <coughs> During that time, there was uh, there's sometimes some little poems around, and you know people write you notes and they give you some. Little um, support, and somebody wrote something to me that was a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson, Adopt the pace of nature, her secret is patience. And it was just the thing I needed to remind me, to look at that. So during that month of practice, these words came to me as a mon- as a mantra, the following words I'm going to read to you, reminding me. That I needed to really settle back and let nature take its course and just show up for the schedule that I was making for myself. So I wrote myself this little mantra and I put it at different places. You know, I actually took it with me and I put it in that walking room that I loved to walk in at the Forest Refuge. I put it on the ledge so that if I was just leaning forward a little bit, I would just take a look at it and remind myself, this is the intention I make for myself. And maybe, if I remember it enough, I'll live into it. And it said to myself, this unfolding process is happening in its own natural way and has its own pace and uniqueness. couldn't be like anybody else's because... There's a unique process that's happening in my own karmic stream, and I really have to respect that. So with that intention, patience was more inclined to arise rather than impatience. And all that was necessary to keep me going was to know what I needed to do for my balance, to show up for those times, and to do my practice. It said that patience is the antidote to striving, which we have the habit of in the West. So that's why this quality is so important to all of us. All the hidden defilements that come with striving are, are there, included, are nearby. Attachment to results. And we want them not just attachment, but we want them right away. Aversion, if it isn't going more easily, if it isn't going the way we think it should go for ourselves. Disappointment, of course. There was somebody in my spiritual path, um, I didn't take up that path, but Swami Satchitananda, and he would say, no appointment, no disappointment. So just remember not to have an, um, an appointment with some kind of goal for myself. Self-judging, which is so painful. Self-criticism. And of course, impatience. So all of these defilements and more are kind of burned up in the quality of patience. In fact, I read something recently where Achan said, patience is a supreme incinerator. Really burning up those defilements. I think you might have noticed already, but um, I have, of course, through the years, that there's no joy in practice when we're striving. There's no joy in practice when we're impatient. And we need patience, we need joy in order to kind of feed and nourish our practice to keep going. When there's a measure of patience, it allows us to be with the unfolding change in changing present moment just as it is instead of kind of getting tight around how it isn't for us. There's a possibility for this inner sense of joy, this quiet joy to arise, not that kind of gleeful, bubbly joy which is just kind of dissipates our energy but this quiet joy to arise that sort of keeps us going along the path, keeps that contented presence with whatever is happening. It nourishes our practice and gives, gives us more energy to keep continuing on, keep going on. Striving, pushing ourselves, depletes our energy So some of you have been to the forest refuge and you may know that there's a relatively open schedule. And so when we're there, for myself, I make my own schedule. I find my way through it. And I try to find enough touchstones in the day where there is sitting and walking. I also try to get fresh air, eat well, and nourish my body, get enough sleep, attend the morning reflections, the evening Dharma talks, those kinds of things that are deep nourishment, deep Dhamma nourishment for me. But all the while, in the sitting and walking and general activities, even I, if I was not formally walking back and forth somewhere all the time, I kept this kind of continuity of mindful awareness and that inclination towards pres- uh, patience. The presence of patience in my practice really just helped me stay steady, to stay the course. And of course, there were times of sleepiness and restlessness, times of attachment and aversion. That's, as Manindra would say, my path is not yet finished. You know, when I would catch him on something, he would say, my path isn't finished yet. And I'd say, okay, you're excused, (laughs) you know. And so I feel that that's the way it is for me too. Things come up, stuff comes up. Attachment, aversion, impatience, annoyance, all of that. And just being able to bring patience to that, even to impatience. So when that truly happens, you have this vantage point of seeing things as they really are because there's no veils, or the veils are thinner, or they are very few, the veils of greed and hatred and delusion. There's the ability to see things as they are, much more clearly. Get closer, and see more deeply, and have them really integrate in one's being, the deep understandings of impermanence, and the not-selfness, the selfless nature of everything. And the unsatisfactory nature of everything, those deep Dharma moments of understanding that help us to not hold on that help us to feel freer here in in the Dharma we lead we read a lot of poetry, of course, and of course the words of the Buddha. but I must confess that I took this reading from a tea box uh, um, Celestial Seasonings Tea Box. (laughs) This is from the Findhorn Garden. Flowers unfold slowly and gently, bit by bit, in the sunshine. And a heart, too, must never be pushed or driven, but unfold in its own perfect timing to reveal its true wonder and beauty. And so that's how it is with us as human beings. We need to do that for ourselves because nobody else is going to do it for us, really. Menindra used to always repeat to me, the Buddha showed us the way, but we ourselves have to walk it when I was kind of depending on him too much for his guidance, for his kind of hand-holding through my practice. So it was interesting to learn that during the time of the Buddha, he laid down certain rules for those who joined the bhikkhuhood, the monkhood, like we do here on retreat. We have certain rules, certain things that you know you can live within so that you feel a sense of you know what to do and there's no question about it. And because of that, we feel more at ease. He laid down these certain rules in order to protect the practice on an individual level and on a community level to support inner quietude that in turn supports clarity because when the mind is quiet we can see more clearly. We can see things as they are. Rules give us a sense of safety and ease within ourselves and among others. And this all so that the transformation and purification of the heart and mind can happen for us. These rules of conduct were called the Vinaya, and they still exist today. It's said that in the beginning, there was only a simple rule, and that rule was patience. But of course, more bhikkhus joined up, and some who weren't fully enlightened or at any stage enlightened compared to the first ones, the first five, and so the Buddha had to make various rules. There were some bhikkhus who were inconsiderate and unmindful and there were rules to help us be more mindful, more considerate of ourselves and one another. So now to this day there are uh, 227 rules of conduct covering all facets of the monastic life, still patience is the supreme code of conduct. Here's a story that I have often told. You may have heard it already, and it makes a good point. I got this story actually from the sports section of the Honolulu Advertiser. I don't know, I don't know now, but uh, you know, thirty years ago, almost forty years ago. Hawaii was a, a Buddhist, mostly a Buddhist state, so a lot of um, there were a lot of things that were put in the in the everyday newspaper that were very Buddhist oriented. So this one was about a young boy who traveled to Japan to the school of a famous martial artist. When he arrived at the dojo, he was given an audience by the sensei, by the teacher. What do you wish from me? the master asked. I wish to be your student and become the the finest student or karateka in the land, the boy replied. How long must I study? Ten years at least, the master answered. What if I study twice as hard as all your other students? Twenty years, replied the master. Twenty years, what if I practice day and night with all my might and effort. 30 years was the master's reply. And so the student said, how is it that each time I say I will work harder, you tell me that it will take longer? The answer is clear, said the teacher. When one eye is fixed upon your destination, there is only one eye left with which to find the way. I'm just not really being present. So by this story we learn that it doesn't help to rush something as precious and important as the development of deep peace, unconditional peace, and liberating understanding. It doesn't help to rush that. A full and complete presence gives us more clarity and a far-ranging view to see things as they are in the moment and the potential for how they could be and also to respond skillfully to whatever comes up along the way so we don't have those ripples of remorse in our minds and hearts that cause us many moments of unclarity and confusion and a feeling of, I'm not good enough, that kind of hold us back. In the early years of my practice in the 70s, I would hear the teachings and feel a sense of, oh, I I feel at home. But I also was so hungry to understand more and more and faster than I could really take it in and integrate it in a good way. I had a lot of questions. There was a great hunger and like what we call spiritual urgency in in my practice during those beginning times. And a lot of impatience. During that time, I uh, came across this writing by Suzuki Roshi who called it Dharma Greed. When you want something so much in the Dharma that it just really feels like you're holding tightly in in yourself. your Your heart is tight around what you want instead of open about how things are. He said, When this happens your practice is rather greedy and then you become discouraged with it which was actually what I experienced during that time. I remember going to my first teacher Manindraji and a teacher of uh, many of us including Joseph of course and telling him how I felt so discouraged. And in retrospect I could see how one insignificant stray thought Which was kind of like I can remember from time immemorial the stray thought of, I'm not good enough, you know, and that kind of went right into my Dharma practice. It kept repeating itself in that kind of momentum of habit that came, that was never nipped uh, along the way. It just so deeply ingrained. It gathered a lot of other similar thoughts and, of course, doubt about myself and my potential for practicing. And it caused huge overwhelm. So I went to Manindra and said, I'm not good at this. You know, it was also one time in my practice, it was a maximum dukkha time, you know, a time when there were multiple hindrance attacks and just couldn't really see through much at that time. It was a huge crisis, for me. And Manindra said, oh, yogi mind, yogi mind. And now we know this to be, and I just want to give Steve Armstrong's uh, definition of yogi mind, because it's so right on. The magnification of the insignificant to a crisis stage. Now, <laughs> <laughs> Manindra didn't give that to me before, but it's right spot on, because that's what happens when we get yogi mind. We just We have this one stray thought, as something that uh, Annie was talking about last night, actually, and then it becomes so big, and most of the time it isn't even true. So Manindra pointed out that I was wanting and expecting practice to be other than it was and not accepting it as it is. And that was the basis of my problem, the root of my problem, having a hidden agenda, expecting something that I thought, you know, maybe I could read about, I read about in a book and thought that this could also happen to me, but it happens to everyone so differently, so uniquely. So much later, in a more refined place of practice, I remember going to Manindra when it felt like there was a holding pattern for a long, long time. It was like... um, In practice, maybe it was the whole retreat, and after that, it was months, or maybe even longer, a year or more, when there was just a lot of kind of smoothness and not a whole lot of ups and downs in practice, and I thought something more dramatic should be happening, and, you know, when something's calm for a long time, we can even think something's wrong with this, you know. but actually it it was a good period of time for me and manindra had to experience that uh, it, tell me about that experience that actually that was a maturing part of my practice and it really needed to take that long my karma was unfolding that way and just to accept that it was and it really helped me when he said he just looked at me straight at the eye and he said, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. No sooner. He didn't say no sooner, but he said, when the fruit is ripe, it will fall from the tree. And it was like I was trying to pick things before they were ripe. So this ripening cannot be rushed. As uh, Emerson says, adopt the pace of nature. Her secret is patience. So I learned that patience is this willingness to wait. It's a willingness to wait. And not with the weight of like, you know, we're <laughs> scrunching our eyelids and, um, you know, our fists are held so tightly and we're saying, when is it going to be over? But it's just kind of the willingness to wait. Um, This is the ripening process that's happening for all of us whether we're in deep dukkha or deep equanimity. It takes its own course and we can't rush it. Someone asked His Holiness the Dalai Lama in an an interview and I want to give his answer um, kind of to you but it's not exactly. I'm just saying somewhat like he said. Someone asked him, "Have you made progress in your practice?" And I know that was the, the question. And he responded somewhat like this. He said, "Oh, one year ago I can see, since one year ago, not much practice, not much progress. But when I look back, five years from then until now, a little. Ten years, oh yes, some." Some progress. (laughs) Twenty years, yes, there is some progress. So, you know, when I think of myself compared to the Dalai Lama, like, who am I to think? You know, it's going to take me such a short time. I love this one by Rilke. Be patient towards all that is unresolved in your heart and try not to love the questions themselves. And try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers that cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. And perhaps you will gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. It's nice to have that kind of genuine feeling inside yourself. So why did the Buddha say that it's the highest virtue? And we discover that this particular quality activates and actualizes all the other virtuous qualities of the paramis. Just want to give a few examples. Equanimity, for example, that spacious non-reactive balance called equanimity, where a where an unpleasant feeling can arise and it can just come and go and there's no reactivity to that unpleasant feeling. The reactivity to an unpleasant feeling would be aversion. Or a pleasant feeling could arise and there's no reactivity to that pleasant feeling. The mind is cool and calm. The reactivity to a pleasant feeling would be attachment. So when this is constantly happening with equanimity, with the help of patience, we feel the non-reactivity of the mind, the deep settledness, the deep peace and equ- of equanimity in the mind. They say it's the ability to rest the mind before it falls into extremes. The extreme of attachment to one side, aversion to another, And it's the willingness to pause and observe the situation instead of reacting, to observe and to really take in what needs to be done. So it's not just that we don't do anything at all in equanimity, I want to make that clear, but it's that we're much clearer about what is happening and what needs to be done, if anything. In India... The the colloquial way of translating equanimity, I'm told, is seeing with patience. Seeing with patience. So patience is an uh, integral part of equanimity. It's like when you're a grandmother or a grandfather, and you see your grandchildren, and there's a different relationship you have with them now. You know, you don't have to be the one to discipline. You can just love them. You can see them with patience. So patience supports equanimity. It also supports that gentle flowing strength like a river of endurance. Suzuki Roshi calls this endurance constancy, that long enduring heart and mind, constancy, that can be very right here, right now, for each passing present moment. So right here, right now, for this moment, and the next moment, and the next moment. He says, forget about the notion of progress. It's short moments many times. And that's what this practice is all about. I've heard that from Joseph so many times. Short moments, many times. So at the same time, we can also appreciate and value the journey no matter how long it is, without grasping for a goal, just enjoying the maturation of the wisdom deepening within us by things that we're seeing over and over again. I remember times in my own practice with Upandita when I'd be going through either a difficult time or a blissful time. um, And he would... He would actually allow me or encourage me to stay in those times and not go through them so quickly so that wisdom could mature more, could deepen more during those times. The ability to see dukkha very closely and withstand it. The ability to see anatta, uh, the selfless nature of everything and not get wigged out by it in the early years the ability to be with impermanence and not feel so um, fearful about that. So one sees this spiritual process as an open-ended journey with patience rather than a goal. A living example for me of this gentle flowing uh, constancy of strength, of endurance, is Aung San Suu Kyi of Myanmar, uh, also called Burma. Probably many of you have heard about her. In 1991, she won the Nobel Peace Prize, and she was a person who fought for democracy, or who, s- who helped others to stand up for democracy in Burma. She initiated the nonviolent movement towards Achieving Democracy in Burma. She was under house arrest for almost 20 years in some form of detention in her house or in the prison, the um, Burmese prison, because of all those efforts. And finally she was released in 2010. I don't know her personally, but I've read a lot about her And she's a great uh, mentor of strength to me. She reminds me of this gentle flowing river that just keeps flowing no matter what the obstacles are. I've read various accounts of what she's up against and how she just kind of lets her mind and her heart and her activity flow around them, like flowing around boulders and debris in a river. That's how she had to handle the military regime there she doesn't push against or have this quality of non-opposition she finds the way to get in or to go around and sees it as kind of a a long term uh, activity that she's involved in like a long river that has to flow she stays connected and influential in her in her demeanor of um, integrity. She moves around in a way that is so graceful, and yet she's a force of strength. So she's gathered this strength and admiration uh, and allies even within the military regime and structure. She's also been practicing metta and vipassana during the time she was incarcerated and practiced a lot with our teacher Seda Upandita, one of her teachers. She honors the precepts and she deeply holds the Paramis. So at one point um, she was taken from her house and she was going to be incarcerated in the prison the public prison. It's called Insane Prison. I-N-S-C-I-N. I I mean, it really is. And then she was put on trial for some ridiculous reason. I I won't even bother to tell you the story about that. There was a news release describing the trial where she entered the room to be on trial. And when she entered, there were uh, these military generals seated and members of the court of Myanmar or Burma seated there, the court officials. The description in the news media was that she was serene and beautiful, and she had a lot of dignity when she entered the room. She walks in such a dignified manner. And uh, what happened is, you know, the room just kind of went silent, and all the military and the court officials they just very spontaneously rose up and they put their hands in pranam together because she's she's um just the epitome of that friendliness and non-harming and this was something that was notable to everyone that this happened during that time the respect that she was given for what she um what she just sort of embodied in herself. It was so, so evident. She's endowed with a kind of patience that sees a long road ahead. She lives her life just genuinely being herself. When I was in Burma last year, there was this um, book exchange and book sale that, that the first time it happened since the British uh, were there. Uh, they were selling books and of all kinds of books and she was to appear there I bought a book about her that was previously not uh, available to anyone in Burma and I never saw it before and I took the book and I was reading it about her life and um, it, she appeared there also it was the first time I was seeing her, I had seen her face to face and she is indeed Everything everyone says about her, she carries herself with such dignity, and she's so beautiful, inside and out. Well, just about her being genuinely who she is. You know, she's kind of this force of um, of power and understanding and compassion, and really bringing her people to um, that potential of democracy. And yet, there was one time in the story. this has nothing to do with the Dhamma, but <laughs> it just has to do with kind of my interest she She was going out with her uh, attendant who actually wrote the book about about her um, and what she went through during this time of her incarceration and Uh, she was going to meet some military men who were coming into the compound that she was locked in. It was her compound, her home. And so, you know, the women of Burma like perfume. And so uh, she had, she was walking out and she turned to her attendant and said, you know, we could be arrested right now and we could probably be going to jail. And so the the person, the woman, looked at her with kind of like, oh, you know, and Aung San Suu Kyi said, I have a bottle of French perfume in my pocket. Shall I spray it on us? <laughs> and we might as well smell good while we're going there. And so she was just herself, just a woman. You know, in fact, um, she would, how she would dress to go to these occasions was all documented by this woman attendant. And that was—it was really important for the Burmese people to wear that beautiful dress, you know, that the Burmese dress. And so uh, she made them proud. So she's a benefactor to me, and I recognize her unfaltering faith in the Dharma. And she's proven to herself that she can be that force of strength. That's what gives her that confidence. And you see that. So there was a uh, YouTube and I was looking up all kinds of things about her and I found this YouTube where an Australian uh, woman was interviewing her. And the interviewer said, when you hear or see or know what the military establishment is doing to the people of your country, don't you want to bring them down And she looked at that person with her such expressive eyes and this incredulous look on her face. And she said, bring them down. She said, oh no, she said, I want to bring them up to their potential. (laughs) And this is, you know, Bodhisattva speaking. So there is that equanimity and that gentle flowing endurance that patience activates that gives us the courage and the, that kind of dignity to live our lives in a way where we can see the most clearly, where we can touch that wisdom so deeply inside of us and bring it out into the world, embody that. So, patience is a way of deeply caring for ourselves and, of course, to others. One uh, definition of patience is it's a real, a deep devotion to our inner sense of well being. A deep devotion to our inner sense of well being. Those are the basic strengths of patience. And now I want to give an example of impatience, of course and how that causes so many ripples in our lives and and, um, doesn't make us feel so good about ourselves. And then we have so many moments where we're in a kind of... uh, Remorse is good, but still there's a lot of ripples inside of us when we have remorse. So we know only too well how impatience has tremendous power over us sometimes, you know, more power than patience. In my life, I've seen this habit pattern of impatience sometimes makes the to-do list more important than people. And that I need to get these things done more, that's more important than paying attention to maybe the way my children need a little more time or people around me need... um, a little more patience. So there was an experience I had with my mother. I wanted just to bring this all down to householder life. Experience that I had with my mother that really awakened my sensitivity to the power uh, of this impatience. So in raising my own children, there was this endless (coughs) to-do list. And one time I took my mother who stayed with us about a month to two months every year. And um, what she would like to do was to cook for us. And so I would give the kitchen over to her so gladly. And then she would come to the grocery store with me. And then she would like to just push the the cart around. She was elderly in her 80s, pretty um, clear mind, uh, but slow in her body and um, she loved to just push the cart around and see what we would need you know in the store and just put it in the cart and then I would wait for her and then we would go pay for the for the food and she would make these wonderful delicious Filipino dishes for us and there was one time I was not very patient with her and just hurrying her up you know and you could see it, you know, and hear it in my tone of voice, I know. And so we got in the car after that time. And um, then my mother, who was actually, she taught me a lot of patience. And my birth name is Patience. It's Paciencia. <laughs> That's my birth name, probably because she knew I needed it somehow. <laughs> so I um, she was sitting beside me and... And I knew, you know, I was rushing and I wanted to get somewhere. And she was sniffling and she got out her handkerchief and she was wiping. And I said, Mom, what's happening? And in her Filipino accent she says, you know, she knows how to say a few things in kind of colloquial way. And she says, I'm shedding a tear. And uh, oh... You know, even now, just to remember it, it hurts me. I'm shedding a tear. And I knew why. You know, I didn't have to ask her. And I, so I just said, I'm sorry, Mom. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. And so, she, you know, she's always a good mom. She didn't blame or anything like that. And so I really felt how long that rippling took, took over my body and my mind. I mean, I still feel it now. You know, I I could constantly um, apologize and (laughs) would never be gone. But of course I, I feel that, you know, compassion for myself and her too and all of that. So, impatience is so powerful and it hurts us and it hurts other people. And just on an everyday level of life, It's so important to see the power and the goodness of patience. (coughs) That was a painful lesson. The opportunities we have to practice are usually so many small moments, experiences, events in our life. So many small moments. Like when you want the bell to ring right at the end of the sitting. Like, when is he or she going to ring that bell? or whatever it is, when there's not the food we want, or there's not enough, or the line isn't going fast enough for us. I'm just speaking for myself, of course. Um, So here on retreat, there are so many opportunities for us to bring, incline the mind towards patience. Even if you just say, not that patience that we might have heard from some of our elders when we were younger with the finger pointing at us and patience, you know. But just that compassionate tone for ourselves that helps us kind of relax more around the moment, around ourselves. We need patience more than anything else towards ourselves, towards how we're doing our practice here, towards allowing things to flow in the way that they do, towards a willingness to wait for when the fruit is ripe it will fall from the tree so I'd like to end with um, this is beautiful little Chinese pro- proverb but very powerful about patience patience is power with time and patience the mulberry leaf becomes silk so let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening.